Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Dr. Marvin Singh is an integrative gastroenterologist and the founder of the Precision Clinic. He did his internal medicine training at the University of Michigan Hospitals, after which he completed a gastroenterology and hepatology fellowship at Scripps Clinic Torrey Pines. He went on to fulfill a fellowship in integrative medicine and was trained by Dr. Andrew Weil at the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine in Tucson, Arizona. And today he's here to discuss his new book titled Rescue Your Health, how new advances in science can help you feel better, boost performance, and live longer. Marvin, welcome. Hi. It's great to have you and... So much of what you talk about in the book is the future of health and this concept of precision medicine, precision healthcare. So how do you define precision healthcare? Well, that's a great question. Back in the day, uh, which was, was probably not that long ago, precision medicine really meant getting your cholesterol checked and maybe an EKG and a couple of basic lab tests done at your primary care doctor's office when you go for your annual physical. But some people still look at that as preventive medicine or, or precision medicine. But the truth is that the technology has advanced so much that we can learn so much more about what's going on inside of our health than ever before. And this is what's super exciting to me. To me, precision medicine means finding out what's going on with all the little components of your body. And a lot of this is things that we can't even see with our naked eye, like what's going on genetically, what's going on in your microbiome, how are your mitochondria functioning, what are the things impacting your health in your environment, and those kind of things. And looking at all of those things together and then understanding what to do for your health, that's what precision medicine means to me. I think this is kind of like the next generation of healthcare, really. It's really a game changer in how we define health or what healthy really means. So, so much of precision comes down to advances in, in technology, advances in testing. And what I love is you outline these five tests that you recommend. You got your gut microbiome assessment, CT coronary calcium score, body composition imaging, including a VAT, which is a visceral adipose tissue score. That one I haven't heard of. And then nutritional genomics and basic lab assessment. So can you briefly walk through each of those tests for us. Yeah. Which one should we start with? Let's start with start, the microbiome. Test. Yeah. Gut microbiome <laughs> assessment. So we know the microbiome is a, a key part of health and wellness and our immune system and managing chronic inflammation in our body. So if 70% of our immune system sits in our microbiome, seems silly not to look at that when you're looking at what's going on in your whole health. And so I often will use microbiome tests to look and see what the composition of the microbiome is, how diverse is it, are there any deficiencies in particular functions, and so that we can use that information to try to prevent a problem from happening. 
And so with regards to microbiome testing, I'm curious, which tests do, do you recommend do you use? And, and a lot of what I've heard is it's still early days in terms of that test and how accurate it is. It, it's a picture, it's a snapshot, but it's not a hundred percent yet. Yeah. Well, there are trillions of microbes in our, my, in our gut, in our microbiome, and everybody is only 10 to 20% similar one guy from the next or one gal from the next. And so there is a ton of information in you and it. And then if you consider all the people in the world, you can imagine what that database of information might look like. And so, yes, we are in the very early stages of understanding how to use the microbiome to help uh, modulate our health. But we have come so far from where we were before, from just regular stool tests for culture and checking for parasites in the stool to doing PCR testing. And now we can do whole genome sequencing of the microbiome and uh, do functional analysis of the microbiome. So we have made leaps and bounds in the technology that is available. And this is the beauty of science is that the things are always going to evolve. I don't, I would hope, I would pray that where we're at now is not where we're going to be because that means that we're not really advancing in science. I mean, we want it, we want to learn more. We want to understand more. And now we have the ability within weeks to sequence the whole microbiome. And I think the next generation of understanding the microbiome will be understanding the metabolites, uh, which are the products that the different bacteria make. That's really going to be the 2.0 version of understanding the gut microbiome. And we can even do some testing in regards to that too. But metabolites, basically, for those who don't know, are the chemicals or products that each of the different bacteria can make or produce in reaction to whatever, digesting something or being exposed to something or another. And it's these chemicals that are, you can think of end products that can go and, and make effects on our body and our health. So it's one thing to understand the microbes, then it's another thing to understand exactly what those microbes are doing. And so I think that's going to be the next generation or where the microbiome testing is going to go. But I'm one that believes that if we keep waiting and waiting for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, we may never be uh, using these tests to our benefit because science is always going to be evolving, which is a good thing. We have the ability to use this information clinically now. So let's use what we have. It's better than what we had before. And so in terms of the microbiome test or the gut metabolite test, if I'm a listener and I want to go get this test, which test do you recommend? I think you're going to get more information out of a functional microbiome test. The metabolite tests are very limited in the amount of metabolites that you can check. So if you want the most information at this time, I think it's good to do what I, what, what's called a functional microbiome analysis, where you I can get the most information out of what's going on in the microbiome, right? So just Google functional microbiome analysis. Yeah. I mean, the, the test that I use is BiomeFX. That's the one that I use uh, specifically most of the time. Got it. And on that note, with the microbiome tests, as we think about the gut and, and the future, I, I keep on hearing fecal transplants. <laughs> it, what, what's your take on fecal transplants and where they fit into the future as we think about our microbiome and the, the health of our gastrointestinal system? Now, if we're talking early days, as far as the microbiome, uh, I think we're way advanced in the microbiome testing compared to where we're at with using fecal transplants. So, so if microbiome testing is early days and fecal transplants are wild, wild west. So 
we do know, and I, I feel that there's going to be great potential to use fecal transplants in a wide variety of conditions. In the United States, the only indication that's approved by the FDA is in the setting of C. diff infection. So that's a, that's a bacterial infection that can happen in the colon that can make you really sick and people have diarrhea and fever and, and uh, can be quite sick in the hospital. And sometimes antibiotics don't work well enough to stop it. And interestingly enough, a fecal transplant seems to work very well in a lot of these cases. I've done them myself and seen like somebody could be sick as a dog, 20, 20 loose diarrhea stools a day. And then you do the fecal transplant in like within the next day, they're like, Hey, I feel so much better. So it, it, it does work in that case. But then when you say, what about my rheumatoid arthritis? What about my Parkinson disease? What about my this or that? that that's wild west, I think, because we know the microbiome is involved in these conditions. But how do you know which kinds of bacteria you need that will interact with the microbes that are already there in your gut that will help modulate or influence that specific disease that you have? We don't really know yet. I mean, getting a fecal transplant means you're getting a lot of bacteria in, in a, basically it's a giant probiotic enema, if you want to think of it that way that you're going to get. So which microbes should you get? Which microbes are going to influence the progression of the disease? What will happen when you put those microbes inside of your gut, which already has microbes? What will the interaction be? What will be the, I don't think we really know that for every disease yet. So do you think we'll know that in our lifetime? Is this five years out or is it 50 years out or tough to say? I hope I see that in my lifetime, hopefully early days. It may be towards the end of our life. I don't think this is going to happen in years. This may be more in a decade plus, I, I would think. There's a lot of stuff to work out, I think. And what they, what we may see is maybe gut specific type of interventions that related to certain conditions. So if we discover that a certain metabolite is missing because of a certain microbe in the setting of some disease, and we can then make that metabolite and give it to people as a medicine, maybe we'll see stuff there. I mean, so we're starting to see some of this. This is the word, the word term postbiotic comes from. So the most famous postbiotic that most people might know is, is butyrate. Um, butyrate's a short chain fatty acid that's made by the bacteria when we eat uh, plant foods. So it's an anti-inflammatory compound and we know that that's helpful for us. Another one that that's out there is uh, urolithin A and that's made by Acromantia mucinophila, which is one of the, one of my favorite uh, microbes, uh, which is inherently a good guy bacteria. And this may help in uh, mitochondrial function and energy production. And this is famous because it comes from pomegranates as well. So that's one source, but we have a source inherent in our gut as well. And maybe some people are deficient in it because they don't have as much of the bacteria there. So that's just an example of where we may be going and maybe easier to do that faster than figuring out exactly what kind of FMT to get. I think it would be really cool to have a personalized FMT some sort of, that's an idea I've always joked around with some of the microbiome scientists that, hey, we should figure out how to, like, we can personalize probiotics now, you know, so why can't we personalize an FMT, you know, look at somebody's microbiome, look at their disease and condition, and then figure out based on available science, what might be the best composition of an FMT for them and then see what happens. It's interesting about acromantia. I, I, I 
keep on hearing about that one and good to know you can get it from pomegranates. So it's, no, <laughs> well, you can not, you're not get, you can't, you can get the byproduct. So the, the urolithin A. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So we'll briefly go through CT coronary calcium score. Pretty mm-hmm. straightforward. Can you just tell everyone what that yeah, so this is a CAT scan. It's a quick CAT scan, low dose. So there's not a whole lot of radiation. I mean, that's maybe one of the downsides, but it's as much, you know, it's, it's not uh, not a large exposure and it can give you a large amount of information quickly. So it's basically a quick CAT scan where you get a quick, where you get an idea of what the calcium deposition is in your coronaries. And it's amazing you can find people who think that they're healthy and active who have a significant amount of uh, calcium deposition in their coronaries. And you say, hey, look, you have a, a moderate risk for heart attack. And they say, whoa, what are you talking about? I'm healthy. I eat healthy. I exercise. But nonetheless, the risk is there. So if you don't know, then you have no clue. And then if you don't have any clue, then you don't know what to do to prevent the problem. So that's really the whole point of this new era of and then the next one, body composition imaging, including VAT. Can you briefly walk us through that one as well? Yeah, that, this is a cool test. This is, a, a, this is like a rapid MRI. So there's no radiation exposure here. And what it does is measure your internal body fat. So you can think of it as checking your BMI, but from the inside. So BMI right now, uh, when we say BMI, it's just a measure, a a calculation of your height and your weight. So you say, oh, kilograms over meter square and you get your, your, you get your BMI and you say, oh, well, your BMI is 30. So you're overweight. So you need to do this or your BMI is 20. So you're okay. So you don't have to worry about it. But you know, they're, they've done uh, studies where they show that I, there's one picture, one, one graphic that comes to mind where they have like six different people and they all have the same BMI, but they showed the body composition scans and they're all different. So somebody could be low risk, somebody could be medium risk, somebody could be high risk. So knowing what's inside is actually more beneficial too. And they, they suggest that the risk for heart disease and cancers and diabetes and, and uh, metabolic syndrome is more predictable uh, or more accurate when you understand what your VAT is. And VAT is visceral adipose tissue. So that's basically this, what we're talking about is adipose means fatty fat. So fatty tissue. So you're getting an understanding of what that amount is. Yeah, it's interesting. We talked about this with Mark Hyman years ago. It's, it's this concept of skinny fat. You yeah, can be exactly. fit, but you may be fat internally, which you do not want and vice versa. You may be a little overweight, but internally be in great shape. So BMI is not necessarily the greatest indicator of, of your overall health and wellness. If you think of it, it's just a mere calculation, right? I mean, it's just a, it's just a calculation, but it's not looking at what's going on inside. I mean, and the two are really not even comparable in how much benefit you can get out of that. I can't tell you how, as a doctor, how many times I've seen Somebody who looked really thin, skinny, and fit just um, get a massive heart attack and end up in the hospital. It happens. And this is what you heard of, oh, you know, Bob was in good health, but then he had a heart attack. Well, you know, uh, these are some of the things. And if you can combine this type of skin with a coronary calcium skin with some other things, then you get even a more accurate understanding of what your risk is and what you need to do. Yes. And, and the next one on the list, nutritional genomics. 
Yeah, this is a cool one too. Nutritional genomics is one of my favorite tests. And what it is, is using a genetic assessments to help you understand what your risks may be for certain kinds of nutritional problems. Just as an example, something that everybody commonly knows about is vitamin C. So I could eat an orange and I have no problems with the vitamin C uh, gene. And you may have the uh, vitamin C gene, let's just say as, a, as an example. And you have, you eat the same orange. It's, I may have a normal response uh, to that and see uh, my vitamin C level in my bloodstream go up as might be expected, but you might not because you have this gene that puts you at risk for having a problem. And so you may need to understand that you should eat more vitamin C in your diet in order to make sure that you're at proper levels nutritionally moving forward. And so this can be an important component to help you understand how to personalize your diet. So if you know that you have a genetic risk for vitamin D and vitamin C deficiency, uh, calcium deficiency, magnesium deficiency, things like that, then you can eat in a way that you can prevent that. There are other genes like for caffeine, for example, if you have more than two cups of coffee, you'd be at higher risk of having a heart attack. So if you're a coffee lover and you have that, that gene, you might want to know about it because that's one way that you can understand how to modify your lifestyle so that you don't have that risk or problem later on. And if someone wants to do one of those tests, any, any you recommend? The, so this is an important point because there are a lot of these kinds of companies out there that do this. And genes are your genes. The technology is pretty advanced now that most companies can sequence the genes and the result will be accurate because the methodology is, is more is pretty straightforward. However, how you interpret those genes and use the use the information to tell somebody what the result is, there is where the difference is. And so pretty strict in who, which tests I use. And I really scrutinize who's running the company, where the company comes from. The company that I use is called Nutrigenomics and they are associated with the University of Toronto. So it comes from an academic place and the, the folks who run the company are leaders in the field of uh, genomics and nutritional genomics. And that's how I use. And we can, off, we can also do whole exome sequencing as well, and they can have nutritional genomics too. So I guess there's two different ways of looking at genes, whether you want to just focus on the nutrition component or whether you want to look at your whole genome. And within there, there will be nutritional things as well. Interesting. I've done 23andMe, which is interesting, mm. but they won't tell you anything. It's like, great, I have the MTHFR gene. I know that. So does everyone. It was actually a study a while ago, I think particular to uh, the BRCA mutation and uh, suggested that 23andMe was not accurate in giving results. <laughs> so it uh, so, so this, you know, it to be, uh, that's why I, you know, I pay attention, you know, and you know, you do the best that you can in the time. 23andMe was a very important company for the purpose that it's really brought this whole concept of genomics to the home. I think everybody knows what yeah. 23andMe is. So people now understand that you can look at your genes and understand some stuff. So it was, it was they were a leader in that at least. Yeah, I've done that. I also did one last year, three by four. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with that one, but I'm excited to try the one you just mentioned. Uh, and then lastly, just your basic lab testing. So, so what in the basic labs, I, I know basic labs can mean a lot of different things to a lot of mm -hmm. different people. Could maybe, can mm -hmm. you maybe briefly talk about like, if you're going to do your basic labs, these are some panels that you must have 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I should say one of the reasons why these, we didn't say why these tests are my top five tests. The reason why these top five tests are there is because they can either be covered by insurance or they are within a reasonable cost, a couple, two, three hundred dollars, depending on whichever test we're talking about. And so lab assessments came uh, to the top five because these are easily covered by insurance and everybody should be able to get these kinds of things. It's more than just a CBC in your metabolic panel and maybe a TSH, which you might get in your standard primary care visit. I like looking at advanced cardiac markers and looking at you in an NMR lipid panel, looking at oxidative LDL, um, looking at myeloperoxidase, looking at TMAO, not just your thyroid, but you know, thyroid antibody, checking your vitamin D and B12 and folate. These are basic labs, but these are a lot of times, these are things that people miss, or they may check your folate, but they won't check a homocysteine. So that's what I mean by basic to me, basic may not even be on somebody's radar, but They really should be considered basic now because anybody should be able to get them. But you can check your omega-3 and your omega-6 levels. That's an important thing. I mean, to understand what you need to do about that. And just to build off of that, the other one is LPA, Uh which is a big one. That's, I think Bob Harper put that on the map because Bob Harper, super fit guy, and then he had a heart attack. And and then we found out later he had sky high LPA. New York Times wrote a piece about it. And that's one we should all look for. And ironically, a lot of insurance companies don't acknowledge that there's a connection between LPA. My insurance won't cover it. Really? Uh, yeah. Between LPA and, and heart disease. The other one, which you mentioned homocysteine, which I'll call out, I've said it on the show numerous times to your point, I would do my basic labs. And then in my, I'm 47, well, I'm about to be 47. You're listening to this podcast while well, I've turned 47. <laughs> Uh, my father died of heart disease at 47. My grandfather died of heart disease in in his early fifties. Heart disease runs in my family. And so in my early forties, we wanted to get a little bit, uh, more sophisticated around testing. So I went to my doctor, Frank Lippman, and we did that. So I've got my, my calcium score. I, I did the full lipid panel and we tested for homocysteine, my homocysteine. And I apologize to the audience that have heard me say it a thousand times, but I'll say it again. So they get so critical. My homocysteine was 63. Wow. Wow. It's like an all-time record. I don't know if I've seen a 63 No one has. I'm also, I always say, I'm, uh, you know, I'll mention it. I know I mentioned my height a lot, but I'll just do it for our new listeners. I'm six foot seven. So I got some scale with the homocysteine. And so everything else was fine. Lipid, pa- cholesterol, LPA, everything else, fine with that. And, and I got it from 63. Now I'm between 12 and 15, which is a little high, but it's like a J curve. If you look at risk and if it's yeah. not high pulmonary embolism, aneurysm, all the, all the types of blood clotting you don't want. We got it from 63 to 12, between 12 and 15, just through supplements, suits through B vitamins, cocktail B vitamins. So I'm a, 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 a extraordinarily grateful. We tested for that because I felt fine. I had no idea my homeless. I was like, I'm fine. I feel great. I'm like, holy cow. And then you start looking at it. So homocysteine, everyone needs to test. I think they got the memo. Yeah. This is Uh, a classic, this is a classic example is your example. So you could have just gone about your life and say, Hey, look, I'm a skinny guy. I'm fit. I I feel like I'm fine. And then one day you have a heart attack. Yeah. And then later on they find out, Oh man, this guy's homocysteine is 63. Wow. This is why, well, why do you want to find out why after you already had the problem, find out why before you have the problem so that the why doesn't actually come to real become well, a real thing. Also, I had a very low C- uh, calcium score. I think it was like one 
or two, blood pressure, everything else was fine. It was just this one thing. So at any rate, everyone needs to do it. Uh, on the note of testing, so also I, I got my first colonoscopy. Uh, All right. You know, you joined the club. I joined the club. Now I'm, I'm due in 10 <laughs> years. So everything's good. I'm, I'm all clean. I'm very excited about that. In preparing for that, I, I did a lot of Googling. I went to Dr. Google, talked to some experts and th there are alternative tests. There's, they're, they're new. There's some DNA testing. You can do them at home. They're very convenient. You don't have to go through like basically when I, when I did the tests, they're like, you can't eat fiber for three days. I'm like, I don't eat this way. <laughs> I had to like <laughs> radically change my diet. Uh, and you drink this gross liquid and you empty out the colon and all that stuff. So I'm curious, what's your take on some of these alternative tests out there that are non-invasive? And do you think that's the future or is it just, what will be the place of these alternative tests? Or the reality is the doc needs to go up there and get the camera inside the gut to really know what's going on. At the end of the day, the gold standard most likely will always be a colonoscopy. There's only one test where you can go in and take something out. And that's the colonoscopy. It's pretty cool. We've made some advances in technology where we can do other things. And we'll talk about a couple of them in a second. But colonoscopy is really, if you're having a problem, if you're having pain or you're having bleeding or you're having weight loss, it, that, that's really got to be the test because that's the only way you're going to be able to see the lining of the colon, be able to see polyps and things like that. No test is 100% perfect. Even colonoscopy could have a miss rate depending on the quality of the bowel preparation or if there's a little small polyp behind a fold and maybe it's not able to be seen. But it's sure as heck a lot better than some of the other tests. So I don't think these other tests are going to completely replace colonoscopy forever. And sometimes those other tests are not appropriate. You can, we came from the days of just fecal occult blood testing to check if there's microscopic trace of blood in the stool to now having a test called Cologuard, where we can look for abnormal cells, uh, abnormal DNA, I should say, in the stool to give you uh, a, a consideration of whether or not there's a polyp or a tumor in the colon. And that test may have a role. Like say you're 70 years old and you're having some weight loss and you're on blood thinners and it might be too risky to do a colonoscopy, but you want to have an idea, could there be something there in the colon that could be causing this? Still in that case, colonoscopy is the best choice, but if that's just a non-starter, then at least you can do a Cologuard test to get an idea. It, it, could this be a consideration? And if it's positive, then I'm doing some risk stratification. If it's positive, then I know I'm doing it for a reason. Because at the end of the day, if the Cologuard's positive, the answer is still colonoscopy. So yeah. And then that's what I've, that's what I've heard. If you do a Cologuard or one of these other tests, you, you, you probably still need to do the colonoscopy, but if you do the colonoscopy, you don't have to do the other tests. Right. And, the, and if you do a Cologuard as your primary method of screening, the recommendations are to do it every three years. If you have no family history and your colonoscopy was good, you're good for 10 years. So that's also the difference. And there's this, there's a substantial false positive, uh, negative rate with uh, Cologuard. I could tell you, we get referrals all the time for a positive Cologuard. That's the reason for the consultation. We do a colonoscopy in all the positive Cologuards that I've gotten, maybe a couple of times was there actually a tumor in the colon. Almost wow. all the time there's a polyp. So you usually find that sometimes there's nothing. So there, it's not a perfect, it's not a perfect test. And also what a way to scare the hell out of someone. 
Exactly. I know. Cause you're doing a test and you got a positive cola guard, your automatic default is like, oh my God, I have cancer, I have cancer, yeah, cancer. And, it's, and it's not like you can just book a colonoscopy tomorrow in this day and age. You're going to have to wait a while. It could be weeks. It could be months. Yeah. Another test is a CT colonography, I guess, to, to be complete. So there's a CAT scan of the colon that we could do. That's what we consider a virtual colonoscopy. And so the downside is you still have to do the prep and it's a radiation exposure because a CAT scan and it can detect uh, small polyps, it can detect polyps, but you know, small polyps may not be detectable as much. And this test you have to do every five years if you're using that as your screening modality. And you have to make sure that your insurance company is going to allow you to do it. So that's the other kicker too, is that sometimes insurance will interfere with, with somebody's plan and say, okay, it's nice that you want to do it, but you, you can't do it. And with that, if you find a polyp on that CAT scan, what are you going to do? You're going to leave it there. You're going to get a colonoscopy. Yeah. So, so you again, know. you can't get around the colonoscopy guys. <laughs> I wish we could, but you got to do it. So leaky gut. Leaky gut is something it still seems like Western medicine doesn't really acknowledge. I think you're, I think you're a pretty balanced guy when it comes to, to Western and Eastern. What's your take on leaky gut? So leaky gut is an interesting topic and it's interesting because in the medical community, it's still considered more of a uh, controversial topic, but in the scientific community, they've been doing studies on intestinal probability for a long time. It's a real thing. And we know that this is the role that the gut uh, can play in chronic disease and inflammation where if there is a vulnerability in the gut lining, then you can have inflammatory or immune responses in reaction to that. And this is what leaky gut is, where you may have bacterial toxins or certain bacteria, even particles of food that may permeate through a vulnerability in the gut lining and create an immune response. And this could be the basis for autoimmune disease and chronic inflammation. So I definitely take this into consideration. And when I do my evaluations, I take it into consideration. And when we give protocols, we take that into consideration as well. How does someone know if someone is just not feeling well and, and they think they may have leaky gut, how do they know for sure? Well, there are a few different kinds of tests that you could do for that. I don't know that any of them are really all alone, something you should dictate your whole life based on, but I like to do, look at things from a couple of different perspectives and then get an understanding, could this person have leaky gut? One would be looking at the microbiome test. You can also check a zonulin level in the stool, which is another thing that sometimes people check. There's a blood panel that can be checked. For example, I use one from Cyrex Labs, which has an intestinal permeability screen. And you can look for antibodies to certain things like lipopolysaccharides. And I use these kinds of tests to get an understanding. And you also have to talk to the patient. Don't forget that this is one mistake that uh, conventional medicine makes. We don't want to make that here in, in this way of taking care of people. Always have to listen to the person. What are their symptoms? What are their concerns? How do they feel? You take all that in together and then you can make a conclusion of whether or not uh, somebody has leaky gut and then what to do about it. Got it. Got it. So we love food lists. I love food lists and you have a top 10 food list in the book. So before we jump into what's on the food list, can you summarize, what is it? Is this a food list for ultimate well-being? Is it for a microbiome? How would you describe this food list? 
I think, well, these are my favorite foods that I think have a high amount of nutritional benefits, combination of antioxidants, vitamins, minerals, polyphenols, and the sources of omega-3s and things like that. And I think these are good things that most people should be able to eat or integrate into their diets. And so that's how I kind of made my top list out of that. Okay. Awesome. So I'm going to, I'm going to go through the list. I'm going to, I'm going to name the food and if, if you could tell us why it made the list. So we'll go from the top. Arugula. Arugula. So arugula, I love adding on uh, to a salad or uh, mixing it on uh, any kind of dish, really. It's a more of a bitter type of green if you've ever eaten it. And bitters are also good with digestion and bloating, for example, and also is a source of calcium and potassium and folate and different kinds of vitamins. And I think it, it give, gives a little spice uh, to your food, a little flair to it. You know, that's one of the other things too. People say, oh, my salad is monotonous. I feel like I, what's, what's so fun in a salad? Well, do something different. Put some cilantro in there. Put some arugula in there. See how it, it changes the taste. And all of a sudden you're eating something different, even though it's really still a salad. Okay. So the next one you just named cilantro. Yeah. Cilantro I love. And actually my, my older son's uh, the favorite green is cilantro and arugula. Maybe that's part of the reason why I also it made the list. <laughs> I consider cilantro to be like a super herb. We use cilantro in detoxification as well. It, it has impacts in blood sugar management. It has immune boosting properties, antioxidants. So I love this as a garnish to salad or, or any kind of dish, really. You can just throw some cilantro on there. It's uh, very flavorful. I love it. I love cilantro. I love to, I love to put it in my guacamole and we're, we're going to talk about avocados because right. avocados did not make the list, but I was disappointed. So we're going to come back to that at the <laughs> end. So next up asparagus. There's so many foods. How could you, you couldn't have to make them in 10. <laughs> uh, asparagus, uh, asparagus is one of my favorite vegetables. Personally, I, I love the taste of it. It's packed with vitamins. It's a good source fiber and it can be used in a lot of different ways. You can grill it, you can saute it, you can steam it, you can even chop it into small pieces and throw it in a salad. And so it, it can be pretty versatile. So that's one of the reasons why, why it made the list. And next up, bok choy. Yeah, bok choy is, is one of these crucifer vegetables uh, that we often hear about, uh, crucifers being good for you. And uh, this also has a lot of different vitamins and minerals, a good source of manganese and folate. And it's also a good source of sulforaphane, which, is, uh, which may have anti-cancer benefits. And this is also one of my uh, favorite uh, vegetables. I love sulforaphane. And next up, ginger. Ginger is probably one of my personal uh, favorite therapies even to use. Here we're talking about it in the form of eating, but I use ginger as a supplement all the time. Ginger is great for nausea. Ginger can be good for bloating. It could be a prokinetic, meaning it helps with your motility. I use it in people with gastroparesis and constipation, and SIBO and bloating all the time. It also can help it with arthritis and reducing risk of heart disease. I mean, if I told you, uh, hey, I have a medicine here that can help you with your nausea, bloating, motility, arthritis, inflammation, and blood sugar balance, would you take it? You would say, Hell yeah, I would take it. <laughs> I love it. And it's it. just ginger we're talking about here. <laughs> Next up, kimchi. Yeah, I had to throw uh, a fermented food on the list uh, just to underscore the importance that we should try to eat fermented foods in our diet regularly. 
because not only do you get the benefit of eating the food itself, but you're also getting probiotics, a dose of probiotics when you eat as well. And so this could be helpful in modulating your immune system and reducing inflammation and, and helping you feel better digestively in your belly as well. And kimchi is nice. It's got a little spice to it. It can be a great side dish uh, to a lot of different kinds of foods. And so that's why that one made the list. Next, Okinawan sweet potato. Oh, yeah. Have you ever had one of these? I have not. Oh, man. This is, uh, this is my favorite. It's that, you know, if you go into the grocery store and you see these purple potatoes, that, that those are these, these sweet potatoes that we're talking about. These have a high antioxidant profile. They taste delicious. I, I love them more than any other uh, kind of potato. And a fun fact is that it has more antioxidants than blueberries even. And so I love this one when you're looking for something like that uh, as a side dish. And you just named our next one, blueberries. Oh, yeah. Well, so yeah, as a fruit, blueberries are also uh, my favorite. And these have a great source of uh, vitamins and also a fiber. You can get six grams of fiber per cup. So, and this is also packed with antioxidants and it's a lower glycemic fruit. So we can, and if you eat the right amount, it's considered a, a low FODMAP fruit as well. So people that may have issues with FODMAPs, the berries are a great uh, source of nutrition for them. And then turmeric? Turmeric, again, just like ginger, uh, turmeric is one of my favorite therapies. Turmeric, there's so much data on turmeric actually, and it is it's definitely a superfood. It's an anti-inflammatory. It's an antioxidant. It uh, can help boost BDNF. It can reduce heart disease. It may even have some potential impacts on cancer. So you can use it to give some nice flavor to a dish. Some people, a lot of people even take it as a supplement. I take it every day as a supplement. And so this can be really helpful as well. And then last, walnuts. Walnuts are a great source of omega-3s. So you can see in the top in the top 10 list, I try to give different foods that may have some different kinds of properties and have a little bit of different background. Walnuts are one of my favorite nuts. I like how they taste. They have a good source of vitamin E and they, may, and they have polyphenols, can be a source of omega-3s. And you can eat it as a snack. You can throw it on a salad, which I like to do a lot of times. You can couple it with an apple and have a snack. I, I like doing that. If you're in the midday crunch and you're feeling like you're a little hungry, instead of going for a bag of chips uh, and a soda, you can go for an apple and a handful of walnuts and, and have a green tea instead. That's a totally different profile of nutrition you're giving yourself versus what many people may do. And can we just make avocado 11 to, to make me happy? <laughs> we'll, can we we'll, do make, that? we'll make avocado an honorary 11, sure. Okay. I personally love avocados. They're a, a definitely a good source of healthy fat and it can definitely be a good additive to your diet for sure. And believe it or not, it has a, a pretty good amount of fiber in an avocado. So avocado is, is definitely a top food for sure. I love it. I should make it a top, I should make it a top 15 list so I can add in a couple extras. <laughs> I, I love it. We'll close on the high note with avocados. Marvin, thank, 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 thank you so much. <laughs> No problem. <laughs>